Welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. My name is Kyle Diaz. And I'm Lion Harrington. And our favorite this week is favorite song from a movie. I'm going to go first because otherwise I'm afraid I'm going to start humming it and then it's just going to be no longer a surprise. <laughs> um, my, there's a lot of stuff that you could pick for this because obviously, you know, there's been lots of songs written directly for movies over the history of cinema. But the one that immediately came to mind when I thought about this is The Bare Necessities from the uh, 1967 animated version of The Jungle Book. I loved The Jungle Book when I was a kid. Uh, you know, it was one of the very classic Disney animated films that I watched over and over and over again. And I think the reason why I liked it so much, even at that early age, is that unlike every other Disney film, the music in this one just really kicks ass. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of this jazzy, groovy style that, you know, would probably sounded dated then. It was like in the middle of the rock and roll era, but um, is certainly much more contemporary than anything in any of the other movies from that time period. Uh, and The Bare Necessities is just a great song. It's funny. Uh, and uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just a great song. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found off my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. Um, I'm, I'm seeing from the uh, Wikipedia article here that it was the first job ever for Van Dyke Parks to arrange the song when he came to Hollywood, which I think is really weird. Because um, he went on to be this uh, arranger and lyricist for all kinds of kind of behind the scenes guys like Brian Wilson and Loudon Wainwright and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of a weird job for him and I, I wonder how much his imprint is on the song but um, Bare Necessity is just a great song just so good it, sorry but did you did you say that you don't like the majority of music and Disney movies no and when I was a kid I hated it, I would love the Disney movies until they all got to the singing part and then once the singing part happened I just tuned out I feel like we talked about this back when we talked about Toy Story 2 yeah you did, you did mention you so didn't like I was like, like I hate music I just feel like in all films there's so many good songs from Disney films like what name another good song from a Disney film uh Akuna Matata okay um, I'll give you that one I mean the Elton John song in The Lion King for some reason, it, uh, maybe I was even too young for Lion King, which came out in, what, like, 94, 95? Yeah, 94. For some reason, like, most of the ones that I remember from when I was a really little kid were, like, Sleeping Beauty, Sword in the Stone, like, that era Disney movies. Okay, okay. And the music in those was always pretty dismal. Beauty and the Beast. The songs in Aladdin are good. I hated no, all the songs. the music in Beauty and the Beast is fine. No, 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 no. So boring. Like it's just there's nothing. There's no like drive to it. I think that the only one that has a uniform, a uniformly great score that I actually enjoyed listening to the music instead of just sitting through them so we could get to the next part of the story was the Jungle Book when I was a kid. Uh, what's your pick for this, Ryan? Um, my pick kind of is uh, cheating. Um, <laughs> That's usually what of, I say. Because <laughs> um, it's it's the theme from Backdraft. 
that is obscure. Um, and I mean, I I had seen the movie first, but, but it has they used it originally as the score when um, Food Network first aired uh, the original Iron Chef series from Japan, mm. and so it's it's just it's such dramatic music that just opens up the intro to Iron Chef, which is set up to be so dramatic and over the top, and it's um, it's really in, just endearing because you know it's at, at the heart of it, it's, it's a cooking show, <laughs> cooking competition. But but the music and then the way um, their their like uh, host Chairman Kaga presents himself as just completely serious and like but just very straight faced about the whole thing and the music just swells as you see like the montage of episodes of people cooking in the intro it's it's just really good and I don't know I I grew up watching Iron Chef as a kid and so every week I'd watch it and that music just reminds me of all of that so your pick for best song from a movie it, you is a song from a movie that you know from primarily a context that's not the movie. Correct. Have Although I did see Backdraft before I watched Iron Chef. I have never seen fair. I have never seen Backdraft. You know, it's about firefighters in Actually, Chicago. According I think. to the Wikipedia article that I'm looking at right now, it says it is the highest grossing film ever made about firefighters. It's just funny to think about I don't know why they they would even like use it in Iron Chef, but they just did and they ran with it. All right, so um, we have kind of a strange set of topics today. We wanted to talk a little bit about video games that we played when we were kids and like the impressions that they had on us and stuff like that. And then we also kind of wanted to go into, you know, maybe a, a more contemporary uh, video game fiasco that's kind of unfolding right now with uh, SimCity Five. Um, so, but let's let's kind of start by talking about you know video games that we used to play and used to love when we were kids and, and kind of where we got our our background in gaming. Um, how do you want to organize this? Should we just each talk for a while or should we like trade back and forth or like how do, how do we... Yeah, maybe maybe we can mention like something really briefly back and forth. Mm-hmm. Alternating, maybe we can start early and move our way forward. Move our way forward. I think that's a good plan. Um... Okay, well, my my background in, in in video games is really weird because I was never allowed to have a video game console when I was a kid. Oh, me neither, um, technically. And in another twist, my house was entirely Macintosh-based until about 2000. So I was that extremely rare breed of gamer who gamed on the classic Macintosh operating system, um, which is just like a, the 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 ecosystem was really was really strange there. Um, so <laughs> I think the first video game I'm going to talk about is a video game called Rescue Exclamation Point, um, which was a shareware game that was built by this one dude whose name I know from researching this game today is named 
Tom Spreen. Uh, and it was a game based on Star Trek The Next Generation, which was my favorite TV show that I watched with my dad every single week. And the point of the game was that you were supposed to warp around this map and pick up uh, colonists who were being attacked by Romulans. Um, I don't remember how this game came to be on my computer because it was way before we had internet connection in my house and I was not... It was I was I was so young. This is the first video game experience I remember having, um, besides maybe Oregon Trail, um, and and I don't know where it came from. But I see here that version 1.0 came out in uh, April 1993, so I was what four or five. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a it was a great game. It was and it, eventually they had to update it to take away all the Star Trek uh, references because it was a. Uh, copyright. So then the Romulans became the, like, Rumans and the Enterprise became the, like, you know, Excelsior or, like, whatever. But And it, it was it, it was very confusing for me as a kid because I was like, I don't recognize any of these names anymore. But it was a it was a great little, little Macintosh-OS game. So that's the first game I remember playing on my like, parents' Macintosh downstairs in, in the office downstairs. Yeah, like you, I, I never grew up with, uh, a home console. I just had uh, a computer, and I, um, for a very long time, we didn't even run Windows. For a long time, uh, my mom only wanted me to play educational games. Mm-hmm. She didn't want me to play anything that didn't have any merit. But um, my friend Spencer had. The game Mech Warrior Two, which is set in uh, the BattleTech universe. I don't know um, if you know anything about that, but you know it's your basic futuristic sci-fi plot, and it involves warring factions using giant humanoid mechs to shoot each other up. But so um, somehow, um, my mom was convinced by. Spencer's parents that it wasn't really violent that it was like because like you're just blowing up you know robot mech things and it's like Star Wars or whatever and so she relented and she got that for me MechWarrior mech was a great video game series I, I don't think I owned one until MechWarrior 3 but it was very it was very good at the um, at the kind of uh, uniquely nerdy interest of like levels and technology like everything about mechwire like yeah there was like actual combat but like what you spent 90 percent of your time doing was like upgrading your mech and like oh yeah like putting all like your lasers (laughs) and missiles and you're like man you know balancing uh what's known as your heat management Mm -hmm. because your weapons produce heat and you need heat sinks to or else your robot overheats can't have that you have to balance that with armor and speed and all of those things. It really, and, it really embraced the minutia of the engineering aspect of the, of the video game in a way that very few games have ever done. So it was like you, you spent most of your time designing things rather than actually fighting. Yeah, things. and and, and, and yeah, it let you have full creative control on these things. Yeah, like I mean, obviously there were templates, pre-built templates, but you could go in and just swap out all the pieces that you wanted to. Mm-hmm. I think, Al, uh. Our good friend who's been on earlier, Alex, last name redacted. Um, he he's told me like one of 
not maybe not his earliest memories of hanging out with me, but one of them is certainly hanging out in my office and us taking turns on at the computer playing this game. Mm-hmm. MacWarrior 2. And we have been uh, really into the franchise pretty much ever since. Hmm. So MacWarrior 2, that came out like... Uh... Like mid nineties, maybe like nineteen ninety five. What when the game came out? Yeah, MacWarrior two probably. Yeah, let's look online. Nineteen ninety five. Because I, I was I was trying to pin down the other day like when I really started playing video games, and so like I remember I'm assuming that the earliest games I remember I didn't necessarily play these like at launch date, but like Rescue was ninety one to ninety three for the versions that I can remember playing. And then Mech Warrior is 95. I also remember playing multiple versions of Oregon Trail. Oh, sure. Me too. Uh, and but that, th- that, got, that got swept under the whole umbrella of actual education games that my mom felt okay with me playing. Yeah, like I actually played Oregon Trail like at school a lot. Like more than it seems like I should have even, even uh, giving it the benefit of the doubt of being educational. Um, well, because all kids care about is hunting. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what I realized the other day? I was thinking about this. I I really cared about hunting because hunting was awesome, and I was such a dick. I was just like those 19th century, uh, like settlers, in that I shot way more buffalo than I could ever possibly hope to eat. Like in the same way that you see those horrifying photos of like somebody standing on top like a herd of buffalo skulls. That was me, just like shooting way more meat than I could carry. Um, but I also really liked the little rafting mini game that you had to do. Oh, at the sure. End. Those because those are the only two, um, like, like hand-eye coordination interactive <laughs> yeah. portions of the game. Yeah. And, Everything and, uh, else is like you set it up and then it just kind of goes on its own. So I basically played the whole game to do the rafting. At the very end. Like, that was my main point. And, but, but here's the weird thing. I think if somebody would have released just a rafting game, like, I don't think I'd have liked it. Like, I think uh, that y- you had to have the, like, crushing uh, stress of, like, ruining your whole Oregon Trail game. Like, you had to have that on your shoulders to really enjoy the rafting part. Oregon Trail is a great game. Um, the next game that I was going to talk about was, is uh, from the similar uh, vintage to MechWarrior. Um, and it's a game that I actually don't think that anybody but me remembers. It has like a two-line Wikipedia page. And it's called Amber Journeys Beyond. Um, and Amber Journeys Beyond was like mist but scary. So like it's similar to mist, you explored like a relatively small kind of sandbox world and you did it by clicking around you know you had like a little left right arrow it wasn't like a first person it was a first person viewpoint but not like continuous motion you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. you know what i'm describing you would click like the right button and then your like viewport would shift to the right you would click forward and your viewpoint would shift forward kind of like scrolling around on google maps um and you would have to the story was that you were a paranormal researcher and your partner had gone to investigate this haunted house, and she'd gone missing. And then you were driving up there when the game began, and the game begins with you seeing a ghost in the middle of the road and crashing your car into a lake. And then you get out of the lake, and you're like standing by the side of the lake, and that's where the game begins. Um, I was watching some 
playthrough videos of this on YouTube, and it doesn't seem that scary to watch it. But when I was a kid, uh, this game was insanely scary. It was terrifying because and it, and, it, and it worked in a way that a lot of scary or like horror video games uh, work really well. So first of all, you were all alone. Um, you had no means to defend yourself. Like the, the it was not, it was not a combat based game. It was a puzzle based game. So it wasn't like you even could fight back if you wanted to. Um, and you just kept finding unexplainable shit. So like you found your partner and she was like blacked out in the garage with a big gash on her head. And um, at some point you managed to get this whole system of video cameras working around the house. And they show you all this paranormal activity that's happening in rooms right next to the one you're standing in. So, like, you would be standing in the living room, and your little, you know, video monitor thing would beep, and you would look at it, and it would show you, like, in the kitchen, like, a bunch of knives, like, dancing around in the air, and then stabbing at the ground, and you go in the kitchen, everything would be totally normal, um, and, uh, eventually you find out that you have to, it's kind of like a, like a sixth sense, uh, kind of, uh, goal where you have to like figure out who these ghosts are who are haunting the house and help them solve their problems so there's like some kind of crazy homicidal gardener and like a woman who committed suicide after her husband never came back from the war and a little kid who rode his bike onto the or his sled onto the lake and drowned um and you had to find each of these ghosts and like help them like, be happy, basically, in their afterlife. Um, but it was a, an insanely scary game, and I have all these memories of my cousin, Melissa, who's about a year younger than I No, not even, she's just a couple months younger than I am. Um, Melissa and I, like, side-by-side side playing this game, like, just terrified out of our skulls, and, uh, like, enjoying it, and also hating it at the same time. Um, and it, it had, you know, like, it certainly wasn't the first video game to do this because Myst also did this and, and stuff like that, but it was the first video game that I can remember where, um, first of all, it was not combat-based. So you didn't have to, like, fight anybody to to do what you wanted to do. It, it, was, it was all about puzzles. And second of all, you could just explore wherever you wanted to. So, like, going back, Oregon Trail, you know, obviously not combat-based, but at the same time, like, also not very... There's not a lot of exploring to be done in Oregon Trail. You, your oxen moved in a straight line uh, across the whole country, basically. Um, in this game, you could go wherever you wanted to. You could solve the puzzles um, at, in whatever way you wanted to. Like, if you wanted to help the little kid ghost, you could do that first, and then you could return and do all the puzzles for the other ghosts, and you could kind of choose how you wanted it to go. Sometimes... You just have no idea what you were supposed to be doing, and you just wander around and look at things. Um, and often when that happened, like, scary stuff happened. Like, you would, like, be walking through a room, and you would look at the mirror, and all of a sudden there would be, like, a reflection that's not you looking back at you and moving. Or you would, like, uh, turn on a TV, and, like, a ghost would run into the room and punch you in the face. And, like, it was just... <laughs> it was a sense that that anything could happen, and that you had to explore this world to find out what all those things were, and I think that's something that I've uh, I continue to appreciate in video games, like, up to today. It's funny you mention uh, that in Myst, because I was actually going to talk about Myst mm-hmm. next, and looking looking back at release dates, um, I should I should have mentioned Myst first. I don't know why I thought I had MechWarrior 2 first, 
because now I do recall them being on CDs. For some reason, I thought they were on three and a quarter floppies. Mm-hmm. But Mist, and then actually also SimCity were the first games um, that I ever got that came on uh, CD-ROMs. Um, and they actually came bundled with the CD-ROM drive that I got for Christmas one year to upgrade uh, our computer. And, I mean, so I guess it was 1993. I really feel like I was older than six and a half. But maybe not. And I remember it took me forever to complete Mist. I found it beautiful and incredibly disturbing at how alone you were on the island. And I just did not understand the puzzles at all. I remember Miss being quite quite scary also, even though it wasn't even really trying to be. But there's something about that sense of like not You you're you're completely like alone mm-hmm. in this place mm-hmm. and you you just have no understanding of what's going on at all and and you have no real uh like all you can really do is just look around yeah you i mean you have very limited agency to interact with your environment and so i think it's it's i don't know what it was um but as a kid it is just really it was like unnerving, and because like like the things that you did stumble upon, like they didn't make sense, and you'd be like, "What is going on?" I was not smart enough for Mist. I tried to play it many times when I was a kid, and I always liked it. But then I would I would do like one puzzle, and I'd feel so smart. And then I get to the next one, and I would just be totally stuck, and then I just wouldn't do anything. Like I would just stop playing. Oh, and also because, um, it came Mist and SimCity came bundled. Uh, with the the CD-ROM drive that we got, so like it had the game manual, and I remember I was reading it, and I was like, if you get stuck and you can't do anything, open up the emergency pack that's like of notes that's bundled with this. But it was literally just the game, and then the manual that's on the cover insert of the jewel case. So I was like, I do not have that. What do I do? <laughs> and so I, I could do, like, I could, I knew like two or three puzzles that I could answer in the game, but I didn't know what they really meant or led to. And so I could do that every couple months for years until I finally got old enough to learn how to use the internet or strategy guides to beat this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Mist was made by Broderbund, which was a... Uh, a uh... Well, uh, I mean, it was published by them. Oh, it, was, it was published by it them. It was developed by uh, I just remember the, I just remember the Broderbund logo um, when it was in front of both Mist, which I found... Uh, incredibly annoying, and the Carmen Sandiego games, which I loved unconditionally with all my heart. Oh, me too. Um, I, uh... <laughs> where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego? 
Um, I actually got one of them working a, a couple months ago. Uh, I found this like weird, totally sketchy, never should have done this, like download this to play uh, Carmen Sandiego, and I, I just downloaded it from the internet and double-clicked on it. And it's such a strange concept. Like, you have this mobile phone that also you can talk to people on, or you just get messages on it. And, like, uh, like the the puzzles are, like, disturbingly easy. Like, you would not think that a child would have any, have any trouble whatsoever completing these tasks. Um, but I loved it so much. It was an incredible game. Oh, yeah. Um, I had... I had... Where in uh, the USA is Carmen Sandiego? I had Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And then I had Where in Space is Carmen Sandiego, which was the coolest thing ever. Where in Space is Carmen Sandiego was incredible. Um, although I don't remember anything about the gameplay, I just remember really liking that it was in space. Um, I <laughs> Ever since I was a kid, I had been a huge space nerd. Um we went to the Natural History Museum and Planetarium so often we had to buy a lifetime pass. <laughs> oh, you, uh, you can still go. Um, yeah, if I knew where that thing was. <laughs> um, and going, just being able to go to all of those planets and moons and we're in spaces conversation was so cool. <laughs> um. I mean, the games, educational games of this era in general were remarkably good at getting you to actually learn stuff. Where in the world does Carmen Sandiego came, if I am if I remember correctly, at least my version came with an almanac. And like, oh, the yeah. idea Mine was too. that you were supposed to look up the answers to these questions with an almanac. So you would get like a question that was like, you know, this person has fled to a country with a, like a, blue flag with a yellow cross on it and you have to look in your almanac and be like oh that's sweden like you know like uh it, it, it and it was it was remarkably effective at getting you to actually like look stuff up another game that i played a lot when i was a kid that uh i think influenced the kind of games that i like and play today was an absolutely incredible game for macintosh called escape velocity oh yeah um, Escape Velocity was basically an open world, like, uh, space commerce game in which you started as this lowly, like, shuttle pilot, and you had to, like, work your way up to be, <clears throat> like, a, uh, you know, a, a, some kind of, y- there were multiple ways of, of getting power in this little universe that you lived in. You could either get military power by upgrading your ship with better guns and and more armor and stuff like that, um, and getting other ships to follow you and kind of be your fleet. Or you could also also gain kind of like economic power by trading things back and forth. Um, It's a very complicated system. You you jumped between like star systems, and each star system had different like planets and like space stations and stuff in them. And depending on where you were and what natural resources were in those areas, like things were worth more. So you could go to like this planet and buy a bunch of iron and then take it to this other planet and sell it because they don't have any iron on that planet. Um, it was very, very complicated and also arbitrarily weird. Like you spent lots of time, you know, just repeatedly ferrying uh, these bullshit 
natural resources from one place to another. Um, and you could also get missions and stuff, and there were various storylines that happened and and stuff like that. But uh, it was the first like truly open world game I can remember playing, and it was huge. The map was huge, and you could go like off the side of the map, and you could you know you could make a certain amount of hyperspace jumps before you ran out of fuel. Um, but at some point, it really seemed like there was no edge to the map when I was a kid. Like, uh, you would pick some really abandoned part of space and, like, just jump that way for a while. And then you might just come upon, like, a whole new society. Like, there was just, like, a, an alien society living out there that you had no idea was there. Um, and it was just kind of, you know, fun and interesting and crazy to just explore and jump around and stuff like that. Um, I guess reading the Wikipedia article about this before we started, it was programmed like all by one guy who's like no longer works as a game developer, um, which is kind of a weird passion project for any one person to have, especially since every planet that you went on had its own little history card that you could read that would tell you what life was like on that planet or, you know, who lived there and stuff like that. Um, it was a remarkably rich uh, galaxy for, for the time period, but... Um, it was a it was a, such a fun game to play because you never had any idea what you were going to find when you jumped to a particular place and in a way that I think a lot of really great open world games have copied today you also had no like the the players uh, I'm sorry the other characters in the game seemed to have interactions that didn't necessarily involve your uh presence being necessary so like you would jump into a system and there would be like a bunch of people who were having like a fight amongst themselves that you had just accidentally jumped into the middle of and they you know they they had goals that weren't necessarily uh, at odds with or allied with yours they were totally uh parallel to yours and and didn't uh really have anything to do with you except that you just stuck yourself in the middle of them and uh i remember that was quite an exciting concept like the idea that the non-playable characters in a video game could be doing things when you weren't around was very strange and, and weird and wonderful. Um, so Escape Velocity was a great game. It was also the first game that I ever extensively modded. Um, and there was a whole community online of people who created you know mods to make everything like ships from Star Wars or mods where you installed it and you were instantly the most powerful person on the map, which I always liked because you know that was easy shortcut to be being awesome um mods where you know like uh i don't know there were all kinds of mods and um i also remember being very annoyed because it had a very clever shareware mechanism where if you did not buy the game and your copy of it expired just nothing would happen you could still play the game except occasionally this uh super powerful ship Captain. piloted by a guy named Captain Hector. Hector, yeah. Would come and destroy you. And like he was and he was it was totally random. You had no idea when it was gonna happen, and he was incredibly powerful. You'd just be tooting along, like, you know, delivering some granite to like this one system, and all of a sudden Captain Hector would just come and be like, You should buy this game and it would kill you. Um and it was really annoying. But um I remember, I remember Alex loved that game when we were kids, and he actually he had that same Star Wars mod. I remember, <laughs> um, but and now I can appreciate um, a lot of the aspects that you mentioned of the game. But when you're when we were our age, uh, and I was hanging out at Alex's last name Redacted's house, um, some video games are fine watching. 
your friend play for a bit, and some are just incredibly boring. <laughs> Escape and, Velocity was probably Escape Velocity boring. is one of those ones that's just incredibly boring. Because everything that you're doing in the game looks so boring. Like it looks like busy work. It's like why. Like you would, you would go to the bar on a planet. You which you go to a planet and you talk to someone. They're like, "Take this shipload to this other planet." And he's like, "Okay." And then he does <laughs> that, and then he clicks on his little star map, and it shoots over to that planet. He lands there, and then it's like you got twenty credits or whatever. And you know, they're like the freedom to do things in that game is, is wonderful, but. The tedium of aspects of that game does not a good uh, spectator event make. So, I, I, as I mentioned, um, when we first got our CD uh, ROM drive, it came bundled with Mist, and then it also came bundled with the first Sim City, and. Uh, I was I was young, obviously, because I guess this was ninety three, ninety four. Mm-hmm. So I was really bad at SimCity. I did not know how to make a workable city, but and even even now, I bet because the original SimCity is very, I think, difficult. Mm-hmm. But it started my my long standing uh, love affair with the Sim franchise in general, and I think at at the peak of that was Sim Tower. Which was actually not developed by Maxis, but was adapted uh, from a Japanese game, Utes Tower. Sim Tower, for some reason, like I played Sim City a lot, and I played Sim City 2000 probably even more. But for some reason, Sim Tower was the game I played by far the most. And I just have all Me kinds too, of memories. Me too, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know why mm-hmm. exactly. I'm gonna guess it's because it was cheaper and because it was in a lot of schools. Oh like, no! I mean, we didn't have it in school. I, that's the only place I ever played. It was at school. Oh, I remember. I remember as a kid playing. I don't know why. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm jumping back and forth. I remember playing SimCity as a kid. Um, I don't know if you ever played the original one. Mm-hmm. I have, but, but only it was so long ago that I don't remember how any of the mechanics work. Um, the, I just remember occasionally, you would get um, what's called a peak, mm-hmm. and so you could it would just show you a little short video clip. Of the daily minutia of some random Sims life in your Sim City, and I did not understand what the point of it was. <laughs> I was really confused. Like it'd be like, "Oh, look, you got a like a, a little peak," and so I'd click on it, and then I would just see this clip of like uh, someone doing some gardening or someone taking a shower, and I'd be really confused at what that was supposed to mean or what I was supposed to do. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? So I, I assume you've seen the guy who's made the like incredibly hellish SimCity. Like, there's some guy who he's made what he thinks is like the ultimate SimCity. It's like self-sustaining. Oh, yeah. Um, it, like It's like, I don't know, I mean, billions of dollars and stuff it generates like all the time. But it's also like the most hellish place to live ever. And he wrote this blog post where he was basically like, everyone exploits everybody. And these people live horrible, short lives in incredibly dirty, crowded, polluted positions, you know, and then they just die. Um, 
it's like watching his it like looks ugly like you see it on this on his like youtube video and it just like looks like a little festering like city and it's it's really weird that um like sim city is like a good enough emulator that uh that it, it, it I, I don't know i don't know that that you can tell just by looking at a sim city whether or not it's a nice place to live or not I remember I played Sim Park and Sim Earth, and they both sucked, and I was really mad. Uh, I loved the the shit out of Sim Ant for some stupid reason, <laughs> where you're just an ant in an ant colony, but it was one of the coolest things ever. You fought, you were a black ant, and you fought red ants, and sometimes you fought a giant spider, well, a regular spider, but when you're an ant, they look giant. I do not remember this game. I obviously never played this game. Um, and so like uh, you you form like a colony in one space in like the backyard, and at one point at, at some point you can breed new queens to mm-hmm. fly out to other sections of uh, the backyard to form their own colonies, and you can eventually invade the house. <laughs> and if you invade it successfully enough, the the people that live there move out. And you just take it over? You just take over the house. I'm pretty sure that does not happen in real life. There's a number yeah, of, I don't think anyone would move out just because there's some ants. Very small. Uh, what else? I play Simcopter. I don't remember that one either. That just sounds like Simcopter was great. You ran like a, a helicopter business, so you were either like the most expensive taxi cab someone could buy, or... You could be used for emergency paramedic stuff or, like, stop, chase down criminals or help put out fires. Kind of but, a... I, I don't but, know whether it was a... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I don't know whether it was a ripoff or whether it was a, like, you know, just uh, someone developing something simultaneously. But similar to the Sim games seemed to me to be the Tycoon games. Oh, yeah. Especially Dino Park Tycoon in which you are the like zoo planner for a bunch of dinosaurs, you have to make sure that you have like enough meat to feed your, you know, Triceratops and your T Rex at the same time, or that your enclosure is big enough, and basically like, like it's like all of the boring parts of Jurassic Park, but none of the uh, sweet parts, none of, none of the raptor attacks. It's like the, if it's like if all of Jurassic Park, they just made a video game focusing on that first section where they're watching the video about the park. Um, uh, but also Roller Coaster Tycoon, which I'm not sure if those two games are related, but um, was also pretty sweet. Sim Tower is such a weird game to me. Like I spent so much time playing Sim Tower and like figuring out where to put your movie theater in relation to your office space and in relation to your like uh you know apartment buildings and stuff like that. Can you imagine if that was like a real tower? There'd be like <laughs> office buildings and fast food restaurants and a hotel and a movie theater and it's like mixed use as shit. That building would be huge. But it's, I think it's hilarious that they basically they made something that was actually really fun to play, but that basically just turned everyone into building managers. Like, it's not it's not something that you would pitch to somebody and you would think that it would be amazing. No, yeah, I'm, and because I mean, like, I, I remember it'd be like, oh no, my office tenants are unhappy. I I, I should lower rent and that'll improve their mood. Um. Or like, you know, oh, this is doing successful. I should jack up their rent to make more money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you know, oh, my elevator maintenance costs are too high. Like, these are not things that kids should, like, 
<laughs> have on their mind. I was, it was always so scary when you didn't put enough cleaning stations, and then in some units there'd just be a giant cockroach, just like flashing. Cockroaches. Yeah, I just I love like cockroaches. the symbol for for your infested room, just giant cockroach over it, and then Ugh. there was nothing you could do no, about you, it. I mean, you, you could had put, to just you could dis- wait. You had to literally bulldoze the room mm. and just build a whole new room because <laughs> that's how it works in real life. Like that's what uh, you know pest pest. Uh, control people do they just come and they bulldoze your house and then they build a new house right on top of it exactly or like yeah i mean i've seen bulldozers get in the freight elevator go up to like the ninth floor and just bulldoze out one room and drive back down Mm -hmm. out the door Mm -hmm. and of course there was the you know even the sims was the one that really let you do this to the maximum point but there was the whole uh create a world that is hellish for your sim inhabitants. So, you know, you would, like, build a bunch of, like, office buildings or whatever, and then you would just destroy the elevator so the only way they could get there was stairs. Or you would just destroy all methods of getting to and from any particular floor and watch, like, two people would be, like, stuck and they couldn't get out. (laughs) Um, It was quite a... It was At this point in the sim history it was quite an abstract method of torture because the people were literally like tiny little people you know what i mean i don't know i just think it's so it's so it's it, there's all of the sim games to some extent but especially sim tower are like so weird and like the mechanics of what they actually have you doing are like you're right they're not something that's super important they kind of belie the the thought that you need to have really high stakes in video games, like you don't have to be the chosen one who's going to save the world through your combat prowess. Like sometimes, you know, you're just like an urban planner, and you got to figure out where you're going to put your your uh, you know nuclear power plant so that they can power your whole city. Like, oh, should I run the the new blockbuster movie or should I run the old time classic for cheaper? But maybe not as many people will come and see it. Well, let's see. What is the demographics of this neighborhood? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's so strange, so strange to me. I, I can't think of a. I don't know. Oh my god! Looking at the the list of Max's sim games, I didn't even realize there's sim golf. I guess god, you run a golf. Do you build your own golf course and manage your that own golf awful. course? <laughs> that's, that's not, that that seems awful. horribly boring. It's not even a game where you get to play golf. No, <laughs> it's a game where you get to manage. Sim refinery that does not sound environmentally uh, sustainable. It was a simulation of their refinery operation for Chevron Corporation. Wow! Oh God! It what? was a it was a commissioned business aid not made available to the public. I guess Chevron hired Maxis to make a game called Sim Refinery that then they used <laughs> to, to train to, to train Chevron employees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, oh, I forgot. I forgot about Sim Farm. I had Sim Farm too. I did not have Sim Farm. Um, I did not have Sim Isle colon Missions in the Rainforest, or Sim Theme Park. And then The Sims was a little later than the time period we've been focusing on, but um, it was like maybe two thousand era, right? Actually, yeah, it came right out at two thousand. Yeah, and I remember playing it on IMAX, which were at that point like brand spanking new. Oh, for some reason I thought you said IMAX. Like, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that would be totally useless. Like, if I had the choice of playing any computer game in IMAX, even in 2000, I would not have chosen The Sims. 
That is probably one giant chosen... ass green crystal above that person. Probably have talking chosen... about simoleons. Probably would have chosen Mech Warrior Three actually, because that would be pretty sweet. Um, oh, that would have been sweet. But no, like the iMac was brand new because it came out in 1998 or something. But it took a little while for people to start getting them. So I remember pl- going over to uh, my friends Kim and Holly's house, and they had uh, like a Bondi blue iMac um, with like the see-through cover and uh, The Sims. The Sims was definitely a game that I never played in the traditional style. Oh, me neither, especially since I was always playing it at other people's houses, and in the time period that you had to play The Sims at other people's houses, you just you just tortured them. Like It was just like, how angry can you make The Sims? Either that or how lavish of a house can you build? It was never like, oh, we'll start out with a, a modest little one-bedroom, and then my Sim will work hard to get promoted at his job so he can make more money so he can buy a bigger house. Like, no, that is that's way too <laughs> boring. Anyway, should we kind of segue a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I guess since we just finished talking about the Sims of our past, we can look forward look at forward. the new uh, SimCity 5 that just rolled out. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason really why we're talking about old video games at all today is because the new SimCity came out, um, and it in it seems to be kind of a good news, bad news kind of situation, really, where, as far as I can tell from reading about this online, it is a good game marred by a horrific release. So basically, they've released a new SimCity, and there's kind of some cool stuff to do in multiplayer where you can run your own server and then have, like, your friends can also build cities like, in the same world as you can, and you can, like, trade back and forth with them and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, there's... It does do certain co-op thing, or world, uh, cooperative world-building things, sort of like how you can do in Minecraft, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, it's just a new SimCity, and there hasn't been one in the franchise since SimCity 4 in 2003. Yeah. But, at the same time... Um, Sim, the new SimCity, which I think is just SimCity. I think, yeah, it is. Um, but I'm going to call it SimCity 5. For it's easier, yeah. For simplicity's sake. Um, it has a, uh, a, a server-based DRM. So basically, you get this game, and it has to talk to a server hosted by Electronic Arts, the company that makes it, to even run a single-player version where you are not talking to anybody, and you're just building your own cities on your own time. And so this is a very controversial thing. It never seems to work correctly. Uh, Cloud-based DRM also plagued Diablo when Diablo 3 came out. Um, And the same kind of thing appears to have happened here, except maybe even worse, where the server is just not performing at a level that lets people be able to play their game. So people on on launch day and and continuing for a a couple of days thereafter have reported, uh, you know, um, their experiencing wait times of like 20 to 30 minutes you you turn on the game and you you know go in and you try to play it and it tells you like we can't reach the server we'll attempt again in half an hour and like it just doesn't work it, it just keeps bumping that time back and back and back because too many people are constantly trying to join and get validation from the server that yes this is a valid copy of SimCity. yes this person has the rights to uh to be able to play it um uh, it's a, and actually i believe um it's not even just validation. Um, 
certain uh, components or calculations for your actual city are run by the EA server. Oh, really? So that's actually offloaded some of the yeah. So they processing. and so they they they've said like you know it it's it un, un, unloads uh, a lot of the work that your computer would have to do. So lesser powered machines could be able to play it, but it just it really makes you much more dependent on EA maintaining servers for you to use to play this game. Yeah. Even if you don't want to interact with anyone else. So like there's a there's a lot of anger going on about this right now. Like it, Amazon has pulled the game from distribution. Like if you go to Amazon's page for SimCity right now, it like says like this is not available. Uh we don't know when this item is going to be available again. Um, has a one-star rating on Amazon after 972 reviews. It would probably be a zero-star rating if they would let you give zero-star ratings to things. Um, this reviewer that I read said, um, Guess what? If you'd love to experience the non-stop thrills and excitement of SimCity, then please remove $60 from your bank and promptly pay someone to kick you repeatedly in the freaking mouth. Um, <laughs> which is like kind of an indication of the... Uh, of the anger on this on this issue, um, I think there's a lot of things happening here. I think that, as far as I can tell, SimCity, uh, the new SimCity, does appear to be a genuinely great game. Um, like, yeah, and I mean, and uh, um, one of the problems, uh, I'm not sure if it, this is just gaming journalism in general, but um, you know, when reviewers have to write a review for it, they'll get an advanced copy, and originally EA wanted them to come into EA Studios and do this under on supervised computers, Whoa. Um, in in their own environment, and people balked at that, and uh, there were some negotiations, and so uh, major uh, review journalists were given their own copies mm-hmm. ahead of time, but they were given like a dedicated server for them to play on. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, when the uh, when the game originally came out, I saw very high reviews, you know, or advanced reviews. Like when people released their reviews before the game actually came out, I was seeing a lot of eights, nines, nine point five out of ten. Um, and now I've seen a couple places actually drop their reviews retroactively uh, until the server issues are are fixed. Um, which is it's just it's just a public relations disaster, and. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, a lot of companies that are moving toward this. We talked about this a little bit. We talked about the PlayStation a couple weeks ago. Um, how there's some worries with the new PlayStation and Xbox consoles that they're going to require this kind of DRM or that they're going to uh, right. need to always be connected to a server. Um, I mean, I think we've already seen that you know they don't run these servers forever. So like, if you could have a machine that would run it, you could play the original SimCity today. Like, you know, just by booting up that particular computer and putting in the floppy disks that came with it. But um, there have been games with big followings uh, whose servers have been shut down because, you know, the game was released 10 years ago and now the servers, like, are just, like, it's just ending. I think EverQuest, which is uh, one of the very first MMORPGs, um, mm-hmm. is it EverQuest whose server was recently shut down and like everyone was really sad about it um, because they had built these like kind of 
second lives. Um, maybe yeah, wasn't. you know, you interact with people in these games. Right. And... right. So, I mean, I think it's a really open question, you know, even once EA manages to get this sorted out and you can actually play SimCity, like how long will you be able to play it for? How long will it take before it's no longer economically feasible for EA to be running a server dedicated just to uh, making sure people can play SimCity 5? And, you know, maybe it's 2016, maybe it's 2020, but it probably isn't 2030, which is kind of the time frame about a lot of these games that you and I are discussing and that I think rightly we're kind of sad that we can't play anymore. Um, so I think there's all kinds of worrying things happening here, and I'm sad that the release of a game that I, frankly, would like to play um, has basically been such a disaster and has garnered, I think, a pretty immense amount of ill will toward the toward the product. As as much as I, I've loved the franchise, like there's just too much stuff to put up with, too much crap to wade through to get to any redeeming factor. Luckily, I don't even have the option at the moment because they are not going to release a Mac OS X version until uh, they just it just says spring of 2013. So I couldn't even play right now if I wanted to. But um, I don't know. They've just done a really poor job of this. Um, the the they did an ask me anything on Reddit recently, where they took questions and everyone. It literally everyone asked them about the DRM issue and and the problems that they were having with the server rollout, and they didn't answer any of those questions. Um, and they their Twitter stream is just like it over and over again, posting the same message like we're aware some people are having problems, we're aware people are having problems. Please try again later. We're aware people are having some problems, and it just seems like a like this is a moment where you need to, uh, you need to have kind of a open and frank conversation with your fans about why you're doing the things you do. And if if, if it's really true that SimCity is a game whose processing power requires a server-side component, then I wish that they would come out and make that clear and explain the technical reasons why and say, look, we're sorry, we're working to fix it, and um, we think that it's made the game better. But as far as I know, they haven't done that, and so everyone's just assuming that it's a DRM issue. Um, which is frankly insane, because if there's any game that EA could know that they were going to release and it was going to be a huge hit, it would be a SimCity game because people love SimCity games going back a long way. And I mean, I think another big problem with this is so many people put in a pre-order for this and they put money down um, with the expectation of being able to, you know, play their game. Yeah, so it's like, you know, your disc shows up on the first day and you pre-ordered it three months ago and paid your 65 bucks or whatever and you pop that in and, you know, now it's four or five or days or a week later and you're still being told that your wait time to play a single-player version of the game is 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, it's you, You've basically got like a Frisbee at that point. Yeah. And first, I think it's... um. A little ridiculous, especially since so much of this is uh, digital download release, that it would even necessarily require setting up pre-orders for, just because, like, what's... What's the point of pre-ordering a digital download? Yeah, kind of, a little bit. But then the other thing is, even if you if they saw all of these pre-orders they got, you have to... They had to have figured that 
their servers are going to get hammered, and they they should have been way more prepared for this. It is a weird, a weird function of like the current state of web technologies that the limiting factor in terms of speed on almost everything is the server side. You know, like it, you really like we can transfer data back and forth pretty much as fast as we need to. HTML and CSS are so small these days that with most people's internet connection speeds, like the limiting factor in what you download is not the HTML and CSS. When a page goes down because too many people are hitting it, it's not the server serving up the files that's a problem. It's usually the database in the background that's like, you know, generating the newest form of the blog or, or whatever if, if it's a blog that goes down. Um, and um, people have really weird ways of getting around this. So, like, I recently downloaded an app for my iPhone called Mailbox. I think it's called Mailbox. Um, it's a new mail app, and it has a server-side component where you can, like, snooze email messages. So if you get a message that you don't need to deal with it for, like, a week, instead of just leaving it in your inbox, you can, like, swipe it and tap a button and say, like, remind me about this message in a week, and until then, you know, hide it from me and, and have it go away. Oh, um, weird. And that information about, like, snooze this for a week, like, lives on their servers. So it needs a connection to their servers as well as to the Gmail servers to make this kind of feature work. Um, and they did a queue system rollout where, like, I downloaded the app and I booted it up and it said, like, you are number 432,716. Like, there are 546,000 people in line behind you. And, like, basically they were letting through, I think it was, like, 13 people a second um, because that's what they figured their servers could keep up with. And Mm -hmm. they did that continuously for weeks. As far as I know, they're still doing it. And I didn't get access for about two weeks after I downloaded the app. And every once in a while, I was was more fascinated in the queue system than in the actual app itself. So I'd boot up every once in a while and see, like, the little counter, like, you know, scrolling downward toward finally sent me a push notification. Um, I thought that was kind of a novel way, also kind of a frustrating way of avoiding what apparently happened to EA, where every single person in the world hit the servers at one time trying to activate their games. Um, But at the same time, uh, I mean, at the same time, you have to know that that's going to happen. Like, they had to know. They had to have known that. So it just doesn't speak very well to their... uh, their preparation skills that they still got hammered. Um, so I don't know. It's really disappointing, and I hope that the game recovers and goes on to have a long and beloved life, uh, and that everyone will be pleased with it. But I'm afraid that won't happen. Um, EA has killed many, many studios that they have acquired. That's true. And it, so it really doesn't look good from Axis. Um, because I mean. They bought out Westwood Studios, which made uh, the classic uh, RTS franchise, um, Command and Conquer, and its Red Alert spinoff. Mm-hmm. And that's lot kind of, of been worn into the ground. Yeah. Um, I know Bioware is kind of struggling under them. EA does not have a good public image with, uh, I think, the gaming community right now. Even the games, like, you know, the EA does make games that people really love. They made Mass Effect, they make Dead Space, um, you know, uh, Madden. 
stuff like that. But I think that m- more so than any other entity in the gaming world, there is a tremendous amount of ill will toward them among like the gaming community. Yeah. So anyway, but at that all that all of that being said, like I like many other people, if it comes out for Macintosh in a little while and the server issue seems to be fixed, I will probably shell out the fifty or fifty five bucks for SimCity because it looks like it's looks like it's a lot of fun, um, and I do miss you know I, I think that it, in some ways it, it, the the time period that we've been talking about for video games was a little bit more freewheeling than it is today. Um, and uh, you know, certain paradigms or, or or conventions have gotten very entrenched today. Where I feel like I, a lot of games that I play, I have played very very similar stuff before. Um, and SimCity was never like that even back in the day, and and probably still not really like that even in its new form. Right. I mean, I I would have a hard time believing someone selling a an urban planning video game <laughs> to a company if it hadn't already been an established franchise. Yeah, like, you know, going up to going up to the EA executives if SimCity didn't exist and be like, "Well, see, there's no character, like there's no main character like any of those other video games of people have been playing this in this year like a godlike figure whose main goal is to build like a self-sustaining city." Like that never gonna fly. That's never the only thing that's less likely than that is the sim refinery game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like they'll have to deal with traffic congestion during rush hour <laughs> and the possibility of raising taxes. People are gonna eat that up. <laughs> but I think it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting illustration of the way that gaming is changing, um, both in terms of it becoming more cloud-based uh, and requiring internet connections and just generally not being a relationship between you and your console anymore. Now it's a relationship, you know, whether that console is a computer or, you know, a, a PS3 or whatever, it's like a relationship between you, your console, and another corporation, well, yeah, because PlayStation I mean, Network or EA or whoever else you need to talk to to make sure that your game works. And I think that it, when these companies put themselves in that kind of situation, they're kind of putting themselves in the firing line if they're not perfect. And so far, none of them have been perfect. Whether they're leaking people's credit card information or, uh, you know, making you wait half an hour to play a single player version of a game. Because, you know, back in the day, you bought a game in a store and you took a physical object home with you and you put it into your computer and it loaded it onto your computer. Mm-hmm. And there was no real way for the company to have any sort of control over you or the product once that physical disc left uh, their possession. Yeah, you could, s- you could sell it, you could modify it. apparent now that um, like, as, uh, you, when you buy the game, you're not you're buying you're paying for the sort of the the privilege to play this game um on their terms as they see fit mm-hmm. until they decide that they're done with you and they're going to take their ball and go home yeah which again makes sense with games that seem to explicitly require that i don't think anybody's surprised that you know 
uh, World of Warcraft like relies on Blizzard servers. Um, it's when it it's when it happens with games that have no real apparent need for it beyond just well, this is what we're gonna do because this is what we can do. Exactly. And uh, it's a way to make sure that you're not you know running this off a burned copy or running it in two places at once or stuff like that. Like those kind of arbitrary restrictions just I think piss everybody off. It makes me as a gamer feel like they they don't like they weirdly don't trust me mm-hmm. or people like they and so and if they like they don't if they don't trust me, they can't respect me. If they don't respect me, why should I be in business with them? Yeah. The industry is still very young and technology is always rapidly changing so it's just very interesting to see how how uh everything this whole the whole gaming industry kind of evolves as we because we it's really something that we've grown up we're like the first kind of generation to grow up with it yeah should we talk about back to the future uh yeah i have a question for you when was the last time you saw this movie um it ha- it had been a while i think um, I think it was sometime in college. Uh, see, I, I don't think I've seen this movie. First of all, like all children, I'm pretty sure I became obsessed with this movie at some point when I was 10 or 11 and watched it repeatedly for years. Oh, yeah. Um, but then I, I, I don't think I've seen this movie in a decade, maybe 15 years. No, not 15 years because I was only 10, 15 years ago. But maybe since I was 15. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. Um, Actually, yeah. It's been a it's been a long time since I saw uh, the first one. Yeah. A, a question that I have for you, and we can talk about it after, is is which one you would have called your favorite? But we'll get to that in a little while. Um, and uh, there were some things that surprised me. There's some things I remembered absolutely 100 percent perfectly. Um, for some reason, I totally remember the moment when he like goes into Doc's house at the very beginning and he like strums the guitar and gets shot back backward. Like for some reason that moment is like really embedded in my skull. I don't know why. Um but I had forgotten how like cartoony this movie is. Like it is not a realistic movie in any way, shape or form. Like this is a movie where people grab other people by their ties and lead them around. This is like a movie where like people have incredibly histrionic like uh you know outbursts of just emotion that you would never see from a real human being um and and uh, it, it uh i don't know it it kind of surprised me and it's still a very fun and watchable movie and it's just almost absurdly crowd pleasing but i had forgotten like the extent to which it is like almost defiantly like unreal if that makes any sense Yes, no, you're right, and I, I actually think, um, especially, I think especially because they go back to, uh, was it 1955, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it's sort of, uh, it takes on, um, it portrays 1955 as less as realistic and like, um. Sort of like a, a leave it to Beaver type, like Pleasantville. Pleasant, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um, and this sort of like embellished 
um, environment. There's like a very because uh... I mean because I mean you know, I don't think you really see that. Um, I mean, well, you see it a little bit when uh, Marty plays that giant amp in the '80s, but I think for the most part, the st- the the scenes that bookend it when he's in his present, they're they're a lot more grounded. Yeah, well, and once again, as as with last uh, episode's film, The Terminator, the '80s are not a, a very happy place. Um, no, <laughs> like everybody's miserable. Like the town he lives in is really ugly. There's like a porno theater downtown. Yeah, yeah like... and he and like he gets back and he's so relieved to see this dirty, crime-ridden area, just because that's like <laughs> that's his home. Yeah, um, I think it's funny that both of the movies that we've watched first have presented the 1980s as just being like the worst decade in American history. Um, this one obviously is doing it more to present this kind of escapist uh, fantasy of, of the 50s, um, but it's still kind of kind of strange. Um, but uh, it, it's 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 very fascinating to me because even the 80s parts are incredibly dated. Oh, see, I don't know. I thought I thought this looked. I thought this held up much better than the Terminator did in terms of. Not looking so out of, not looking so old, I guess. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, uh, but in the same way that the Terminator did, also like it, this is definitely a, a movie that's like of its time. It's oh like, sure, sure. But it, I mean, they're not going for like a timeless look, and that's good because it it just feels like the '80s. Like he's the way he's dressed, the way everyone's dressed, the cars they drive, and stuff like that. It like, and and it's weird in the same way that it was last week to have a movie whose present day is now very far in the past. And actually, I remember reading recently somebody somewhere was marveling at the fact that, like, we're almost as far from 1985 now as 1985 was from 1955. Right. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of Back to the Future anniversary thing. Yeah, in uh, 2015. 2015. But if you were to make this movie in 2015, like, you would only go back to 1985. Yeah. Um, and that oh, would and, be but, I mean, I, and I think period. I do think... Um, they make it a point, though, to look uh, very much of that time, just because it needs to clearly contrast mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with uh, the other time period. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Which I, which I kind of think is like, which is why he like stresses Pepsi Free and Tab. Yeah, which like both a... now sound really dated. <laughs> well, no, now neither of those exist. Like, it, or I mean, maybe Tab still exists. Tab somewhere. still so, Tab still exists. You just like don't really buy it. But that whole wordplay in the uh, in the like at some point that whole wordplay in the soda fountain like won't make any sense to anyone. It'll make as much sense to us as it did to that like uh, that uh, restaurant uh, owner, where it's like, what is a tab? What is a Pepsi free? <laughs> I gotta know what these things are. I mean, because like he says like, give me someone with no sugar, so the guy just gives him like a cup of coffee. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they they get a lot of uh, a lot of humor from those like little moments in the past where like like very 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 small things are changed, but they're still like really baffling to Marty. Like there's a moment in the movie when he's trying to he's trying to like twist the top off a Pepsi. Oh yeah, and, and then like... his, his dad George McFly just grabs it from him and like you know takes the top off on the mounted 
can uh, bottle opener that's that's on the soda machine, and it's like it, it's a just a, it's just a tiny little moment, but you know that's something that they had to think about. Like what was different? They probably had a session where they just sat down and thought about like what was different thirty years ago, and no skateboards and no twist off cans. Um, also one thing I noticed about especially about that that scene in particular, like you just notice that he opens it and the cap just falls to the ground. <laughs> and then they just walk away from it. Yeah, which I think was sort of like no one really cared back then. Yeah. Yeah, nobody was recycling. It was a very small detail that really stands out to me now because like, I was like, you can't just leave that on the ground. <laughs> Throw that shit away. Some things I like didn't really buy them being that different. Like, maybe... Maybe this is newer than I thought, but everybody in the... Like, they made this life preserver joke about his vest, like, eight times. Like, he's wearing oh, yeah. he's wearing a puffy down vest, like, made out of polyester or something um, from the 80s. And when he goes back, everyone's like, what's that life preserver for? And it's like, that one didn't ring as true to me, because I was like, even in the 50s, they would have known what a vest was, right? Like, they had down... They had, they had like, a, you know, quilted vests in the 80s, but... Um, maybe, yeah, I mean, it's just a fashion yeah. joke. I don't know. But on the other hand, one of the most successful jokes in the whole movie is uh, Doc Brown's uh, reaction when Marty tells him that Ronald Reagan is president. Like, that is a moment that still works as well as it did in 1985, I think. He's like, the actor? And he's just like so... He, he goes on this long <laughs> rant. He like walks outside. He's like, I, I suppose you're telling like, me that... <laughs> who's like, the vice president? Jerry Lewis? Exactly. <laughs> I'm telling the truth, Doc. You gotta believe me. Then tell me, future boy. <laughs> who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? Then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. I suppose Jane Wyman is a first lady. Whoa, wait, Doc. And Jack Benny is secretary of the treasury. Doc, you gotta listen to me. I got enough practical jokes for one evening. Good night, future boy. No, wait, Doc. Doc. Um... Like, that is still hilarious. And I guess, according to Wikipedia, it was one of Ronald Reagan's... Like, Ronald Reagan like made the projectionist like stop and rewind the movie so that he could hear that joke again. Um, which I think is is also really funny. It is, um, yeah. I, I don't know. There's, I have some notes here. Um, the Doc's uh, 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 tendency to do his experiments on his dog is really super fucked up, in my opinion. Um, like, like, he just sends the dog through the first time with no... Like, he's just, like, on faith that it's gonna work. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, it really made me think of... Um, the, it, it, there's a really horrifying Stephen King short story. It's, like, one of his only short stories about sci-fi, and like, that's that's in the sci-fi genre, and it's called The Jaunt. Have you read this story? Mm, I don't think so. It's in one of his big short story collections from the 80s. Maybe it's like uh, Skeleton Crew or something, I forget. Um, But The Jaunt is a story about this method of travel that uh, somehow takes you across really, really far distances with no um, like time, like basically like teleportation. But Mm -hmm. you only go through if you're like unconscious. 
Oh, I feel like I have read this. And so, like, basically this, this the short story setting is, like, this dad and this kid are waiting to go on their jaunt to, like, some other planet, and the dad is describing to the kid how, like, you have to be unconscious because, like, nobody knows what actually happens to you during the jaunt uh, or during the teleportation time period, and then the kid, like, doesn't take his pill, and then he comes out on the other side like, as this insane person, because it turns out that, like, while you're the subjective time that you spend, like, in this teleportation time period is, like, I don't know, like, a million years, or, like, 65 million years, or, like, something incredibly long, um, and then he just claws his eyes out at the end of the story and just, like, tears out his own throat, um, and it's just an incredibly disturbing short story, and I was like, what if that happened to Einstein? Like, his poor dog, like, he, he you know, he only time travels a minute, but he's, he comes back like a really old, or like, dead dog skeleton in the in the car. I was, I was very angry at, at the dog for so carelessly subjecting his dog to these uh, quantum experiments. Um, I also think it's very fitting that they meet at the mall. Like, I don't know if that's exactly... I, I guess it must have been intentional. Like, they were, like, you know, because the mall is, like, the quintessential place of the 80s. Yeah. Um, But that that is quite a nice way to contrast it with the uh, with the 50s, that they get there, and it's just, like, where's the one place that you can go where you have lots of space and no people at night? It's, like, the mall parking lot. Um, I guess we should talk a little bit about how the uh, mechanics of the time travel actually work in this movie. It's it's surprisingly inconsistent. It's like actually super ridiculous. Um when I well like when I when I when I first thought about when you first think about um back to the future you it seems like it's a it, that standard sort of uh paradox thing since the whole plot of the first movie revolves around him trying to make sure he doesn't erase his own past. Yeah, like how but can the, you be your own grandfather? The, there's so many qualities that stick out that seem like they're predestined uh to happen yeah like like in the terminator yeah. which is in direct contrast so it's like I'll... it's like oh, it's like this yeah. kiss at the it's like this kiss at the dance is like one of these moments that is like uh you're right that that almost seems like it's predestined even though the timeline before that like mario he totally fucks it up but it's like somehow because of that like they still get to the same place in the end kind of like, like he he clearly changes his his future mm-hmm. or his present when he goes back, but then there there are things like because he mentions it to um the like the soda fountain worker he becomes mayor. Yeah, yeah, and and because um because he plays Johnny B. Good, Chuck Berry hears it yeah although at the beginning it does not seem like this is a this happened so it always has happened type of story well yeah because he changes it, everything it's, it's because everything changes it's su- so it's like yeah it's surprisingly inconsistent like yeah like uh the i i i love the the small details like um the the mall being twin pines mall and then um when he dry when he goes back in time and lands in the tree farm he kills one of those two trees and so at the end of the movie it's called Lone Pine Mall <laughs> like those those small details are hilarious but then like if if I really wanted to nerd out and nitpick like 
there are just so many inconsistencies with how this is set up. Well, yeah, and, and of course, like the story, I mean, the the photograph is the is the worst part of the, how the time travel mechanics work in this movie. That is so incredibly stupid that they disappear from the photograph in the order in which they're born. Yeah, like it, it's not like the it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's not it's not the same kind of. I know it's <laughs> it's it's a it's a weak artificial construct to make uh, tension in the plot. Yeah, well, and there's all kinds of those because you know. Um, well, because it's a movie. Because <laughs> it's a movie, of course. But it, they also like he he does not he does not fully take advantage of the fact that he has a time machine at any point, even though he clearly has a time machine. So, like, at the end, you know, he's he's gotten there ten minutes early, and he's racing back to the other side of town so that he can rescue Doc in time. But, like, why? Like, if he gets there and he fails, like, he can just do it again. <laughs> like, you know, like, when he gets there at the end, and he's like, no! And he's, like, laying well, beside well, Doc. Well, he can't, sad. because he doesn't have the plutonium. Oh, you're right. I was for some reason at that point I was thinking that the plutonium was still in the case right beside him. But I guess the Libyans, the Libyans probably stole it. Probably took it before they left or or something. Yeah. Um, although they crashed into that like a uh, little hut thing, and I didn't see them come and get the case back. Um, uh, well, I assumed that they grabbed it when he dove into the car. Yeah. Which gives him enough time to get away. But and then he- I assumed it kind of exploded when. They yeah. exploded. But you're right. Like, you know, if 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 Marty and Doc actually met in the past, then obviously Doc is of an age where he would remember Marty. So why would anything that led up to the time travel moment ever happen? You know, because, like, the Doc wouldn't, like, befriend Marty and, like, bring him to the mall at that certain time, put him in danger from the Libyans if and get him stuck back in time. It's you know, yeah, it's all very It's all totally messed up. Doesn't make any sense at all. And honestly, um one of the the weakest points I think is they never really established why these two are hanging out in the first place. That is a weird little inconsistency. Like you get it at the beginning when the uh you get a little bit of it when the principal is like, Don't hang out with that Doc Brown character. But until you But that kinda of totally makes sense. The first time that you see Marty and Doc together is at the mall, and you don't really like it, it's not a very good introduction to their relationship before that point. Like, if there was a weird, really old, eccentric, rich guy who just Constantly built stuff in his garage, I probably plutonium. wouldn't tell the high school kids to hang out with him either. Yeah, he's, I think that's he's a good point. well. And I mean, clearly he's a little un- imbalanced if he stole plutonium from terrorists yeah yeah uh another thing that i thought was a little bit fucked up so he he goes back into the past and through his actions in the past when he comes back to the future his whole family is different instead of being this nebbish uh you know milk toast his dad is a successful published author and instead of being an alcoholic his mom's like a happy person and instead of being like a deadbeat, his brother is like a perfectly nice guy, um, which is all well and good, and all the changes are for the better. So everyone is just treats it as a good thing, but it kind of also means that he destroyed those people a little bit. Like, like the kind of person who is a successful, established author is a very different kind of person from the kind of person that George was at the beginning of the movie. So, in essence, he's basically killed 
the other version of his dad that he's known his entire life. Uh, and, and this other guy is going to be different in like fundamental ways because he's had a different He's just had different experience. experiences. Yeah, and so like it, it makes me kind of uncomfortable that he's so cool with it. He's just like, oh, yes, this is definitely better, and he's not just immediately sad because uh, all the members of his family that he's known and loved his entire life are now fundamentally different people. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, he's 17 years old, and he comes back and just has... A sweet new car. I mean, yeah, true. And his mom is fine with him going up to the lake with his hot girlfriend, and his dad isn't a dweeb anymore who gets his tie pulled on and stuff like that. But like, yeah, he. I don't. He he hasn't had time to process it. Because <laughs> because um, if you remember, like the whole plot of the whole trilogy for Marty kind of spans like a couple days. Really? Well, I mean, maybe a couple. Well, weeks, he's no because he's well. It, it's all continuous. He has no yeah. time to stop and reflect on what's happened. I mean, You're right. it's You're like because right. he... it is like a week or two, um, in uh, the 1955, and I think it's like probably actually two takes place pretty quickly, huh? Yeah, but I think three. I think he's stuck in the Wild West for a little while. For a little while, but but there's there's really no by the time of the end of the third movie. Like, he has had no time that's not shown. Yeah, I wonder I wonder whether somebody's gone through and and calculated. I mean, somebody's got to have done this, right, on the internet somewhere? Calculated sure. how long, you know, the whole trilogy takes in, in real time. Um, but, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, a year of living his, quote-unquote, better life. After changing it, he does kind of have some sort of existential crisis where he realizes that he's erased the people that he actually knew and they're replaced with these, you know, modified copies. Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't think so just because that's so completely out of the scope of Back to the movies. Future, yeah. <laughs> but if they made a serious version of that movie, he would totally be having those kind of thoughts. Um, other thoughts, Marty is remarkably bad at remembering that he's in the past. <laughs> he's constantly like, like making allusions to things that people have no idea about. Like, you know, when he's watching the honeymooners with those people and he's talking about how it's a rerun and stuff like that. Yeah. Why? Well... Like, why would you say that? Like, just shut up. Like, stop talking to this. God. <laughs> <laughs> like you're obviously in the past and you have no like idea what your words could be doing. Um I don't know. I love the way that he makes uh he makes George do something by pretending to be Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. George, I, I kind of forgot then, about that. And then George just does it, like, <laughs> no questions asked. He's just like, oh, yes, definitely. And my question is, like, well, there's all kinds of questions that people have where they're like, you know, why doesn't Marty's mom realize that he looks exactly like this guy that she kissed in, uh, in uh, you know, back in high school? And my question was, like, George McFly is obviously a big sci-fi fan. So what does he think when he sees Star Wars? 
<laughs> all these years later, and here's the name Darth Vader for the first time. They have some kind of flashback to the Darth Vader from the Vulcan moment that led to his whole entire life. And well, like, wait, what does he think about that moment? I don't know, but he in the movie he just does he just does what Darth Vader tells. Yeah, he him. just believes it. Yeah, so like, like so, the rest of his life, does he think he had had a weird alien encounter, like a genuine extraterrestrial encounter, and that the extraterrestrial told him to, like invite this woman to the dance like it doesn't make any sense uh, it kind of it kind of when you think about it it makes george look really crazy <laughs> i mean george McFly, his whole life has been based around this alien encounter he thinks he had george mcfly in this movie does not come off very well at any point including at the end when he's supposed to be a happy successful person um, and I actually, I think my least favorite performance in a movie full of pretty strong performances across the board uh, is uh, Crispin Glover's. Crispin Glover's as as George McFly. It's just it's too it's like a bridge too far. For some reason, I'm willing to accept it, the guy. I forget his name. The guy who plays Biff. I'm willing to accept his uh, you know incredible assholery. And I think he's really good as a bully. Me too. And he's great in... Actually, he's great in everything I've ever seen him in. He's really great in uh, Freaks and Geeks too. Yeah, um, and he's in um, my uh, favorite underappreciated TV show, Ed. He is in Ed. I forgot about that. Um, but he And he always kind of plays these same kind of characters. Yeah, Even if they're not bullies, they're kind of the same archetype of being sort of jockey alpha male type yeah but he's great he's absolutely great in this movie um but uh for some reason chris mcglover is just too far oh and of course christopher lloyd as doc oh, brown yeah. is, is like and obviously michael j fox yeah and actually if anything back to the future 2 is an even better opportunity for uh biff guy because the old biff from the future is an even better villain than young Biff from the past. Oh, definitely. Um, so he he continues to be a force to be reckoned with throughout this trilogy. <laughs> I, I I just I love that scene where, um, like Marty goes to confront Biff, and so he stands up from the counter and just realizes how much bigger <laughs> he is. Like it's just like he just he has to look so far up. Yeah, yeah. It's it's such a well composed scene that you really get this daunting sort of effect. Although it is a little bit uh, jarring in such a clownish, cartoonish movie that Biff is like basically raping that woman who's in. Oh well, yeah. Like he's um, like it. It's it's it much worse in the second one. Really super creepy what he's doing right there. I don't remember what happened. The second one, like he. Um, once he takes, once he gets the book, he like becomes super rich and basically takes over the city and it's like filled with all of this crime. Yeah. I remember that part. And it's like, it's revealed that like he murdered George and covered it up. Oh my God. I do not remember that part. Um, like it's, it's like way more dark. Huh. Huh. Um, and it kind of, it, it kind of gets glossed over in my memory just because I was a kid. Yeah. But, I also but did like, not uh, the the nineteen eighty like nineteen eighties Biff dystopia is yeah. really really terrifying. Yeah. I remember that. It really is a dystopia. Yeah, 
Um, I also had totally did not, I did not catch the uh, racial epithet when I was a child watching this movie. I did not recognize, I think it's Spook. It says Spook, right? Yeah, or, he does. Yeah, I did not recognize Spook as a racial epithet when I was a kid watching this movie. And it's a, it's a, it like, comes at a pretty, like, it, it's, it works surprisingly well. It's not, it doesn't come off as insensitive. It comes off as like, hey, they're finally acknowledging that this is a super racist 50s. Um um, I was kind of happy that they did that. <laughs> Although then they do the kind of racially uncomfortable thing where it turns out that Michael J. Fox invented rock and roll instead of Chuck Berry. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's but also again, because it, it's of because Chuck of <laughs> it's so. what's it called? It's a bootstrap paradox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in that the concept of rock and roll music kind of exists regardless. There's there's no origin to it. It yeah. just exists for outside of time. Yeah. Um. Oh, and in regards to Spook, I I also as a kid I did not um get when they called them uh, reefer heads <laughs> that they were all just smoking weed inside that car. Yeah. Yeah, I it's didn't like... get that either. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read that they originally planned to cut the Johnny Be Good sequence from the movie. Because they felt it slowed Sorry, down. Sorry, what was yeah. that? I read on Wikipedia that they originally planned to cut the Johnny Be Good sequence from the movie, um, because uh, they were worried that it slowed down the ending. But that then they showed it to like some focus groups, and it like tested so well that they left it in. Which it's insane to me how they would think about cutting that part out because it's like one of the most iconic, uh, like scenes in like movie history. Basically, like it's is incredibly yeah. well known scene. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Michael J. Fox, he just really goes at it, too. This is Michael J. Fox's, like, the best role he could ever have. Like, he he, he crushes this in a way that he... And he's he's a great actor, and he's been great in other stuff, too, but he was just perfect for this movie at that. It's like the perfect role for the perfect actor at the perfect time. Yeah. I think, I think what they said um, in production is that so much of Marty McFly's personality is just how michael j fox also is which is what makes it work <laughs> yeah and because I originally I they were filming it with it. uh they couldn't get him because of his uh uh obligations to family ties and so they filmed it with oh eric stoltz that would have been a disaster which they said he, what did they say that um stoltz gave a terrifically dramatic performance yeah, can you imagine that for this movie? This it would have been a totally different movie. It's just yeah, just cuz it would have been um yeah. True, my only real touch point for Eric Stoltz is that he's the uh heroin dealer in pulp fiction, so that might be coloring this a bit. But I just can't imagine what that movie would be like. But I mean, I I can clearly see where they say that he gives a great dramatic performance that just doesn't work in this movie. Yeah, me too. Because it relies so much on those small comedic moments. Yeah. Oh, everything from like the uh, Calvin Klein underwear <laughs> gag where he's just like scared that his mom has seen him in his underwear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the whole like kind of vaguely incestuous part of the movie is also really strange. Yeah. Like, and it, I guess it was a reason for Disney originally rejecting the script because they were like, we're not going to... I'm not gonna air a movie where like a mom falls in love with her own son. Um, but so many other places thought it wasn't raunchy enough when yeah, they compare it to because like Fast Times at Ridgemont High was 
making it more that. raunchy would have been a disaster. <laughs> like, it's already like about as raunchy as it can go without being creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they they do a good job of of pulling themselves out of that fire when they kiss, and like she's like, it's like weird kissing my brother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think it's a pretty ballsy move. I don't know whether they'd secured funding for Back to the Future 2 yet, but the whole ending of the movie is a pretty ballsy move. Like, so, such a great setup for the next movie, and also with another super iconic line of uh, where we're going, we don't need roads. Oh, yeah. It's got to be one of the most quoted movie quotes of all time. Um, And then just a car blasting off the DeLorean, like, with its uh, new flying capabilities. Like, I don't know. I just think that's really gutsy that they sucked that in there at the end. Can you imagine if they never made it back to the future, too, and that was just the end of the movie? It would be such a tease. It would. I mean, yeah. And actually, um, that was, like, they didn't have two already lined up. Mm. Um, And because it was so successful, they went back. And then, as I was reading, um... They're they're kind of mad at themselves that at the end of the scene, um, they drag uh, Marty's girlfriend with them. Oh, yeah. Because then they just had to write her into... <laughs> but didn't they just immediately put her to sleep? Like, I remember at the beginning of Back to the Future 2, Doc, like, just touches her head with something and she falls yeah, asleep. Yeah, but, but then movie. they have to set up a... They set up a whole separate plot line with her. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, like, they she wakes up and, like, the police escort her home... Oh, yeah. I do remember that. So, yeah, they just kind of had to shoehorn that in. (laughs) Okay, so this is a good time to talk about this. So, like, when you were a kid, what was your favorite Back to the Future movie? When I was a kid, it was definitely two. Yeah, mine too. Because you saw the future, which was awesome. Like, everything about the future was awesome. His hovering skateboard, his incredible, like, self-tying shoelaces. Uh, I even loved uh, the, like, the Jaws 9 gag (laughs) with, like, the 3D shark that bites Mm -hmm. him. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, like Back to the Future Two was like unquestionably my favorite, and now I haven't seen it in as long as it's been since I've seen this film. So I I'm probably gonna watch it again over the next few days just to. See I will if too, it, just because. See if it holds um, up. Watching, I had so much fun watching Back to the Future. I forgot how, just how much fun it was. Yeah, me too. Um, because like Terminator was fine, but it didn't really. Um compel me to want to finish the franchise like watching Back to the Future did. No, me neither. And I have almost no memory at all of Back to the Future 3. Um, yeah, I'll pro- I just, it doesn't, I don't think, even as a kid I knew that it, it was the weak link. Yeah, me too. Um, I think it's weird that Robert Zemeckis like doesn't make movies like this anymore. Like he's basically had like three arcs of his career. Like he had the mo- the time when he was the director of like kind of zany comedies. Like, Back to the Future, who framed Robert Ra- Roger Rabbit, uh, and Romance in the Stone, not to quite the same extent, but still kind of. Although, um, as I, I read, Romance in the Stone kind of kind of saved him. Yeah, yeah, I think it really did. The movie was like a surprise hit. Um, yeah. And launched both like his and Michael Douglas's careers simultaneously. But um, and, and then he like made a bunch of dramatic films, like Forrest Gump and Castaway. Exactly. And then he directed a bunch of really shitty semi-animated films like Beowulf and Polar Express. Oh, God, And then now he's back to kind of dramatic films because his most recent film was uh, Flight with uh, Denzel Washington as the uh, alcoholic pilot. Yep. Um, 
Although he did do Mars Needs Moms, right? Did he really? Oh, no, I guess he's just a producer. I'm looking at this list. Oh, yeah. Because I know he did a couple. He did a couple of the, like, motion capture animated movies, but I don't think he's done anything else. I mean, yeah, I I, I know. I knew he did Polar Express and Beowulf because those. When I saw them, I knew that those weren't going to end well. Like, yeah. when I saw the trails, I'm like, why would you make this? Yeah. I just think it's oh weird that he's... Oh, my God. He was a producer on 13 Ghosts. <laughs> Ryan's favorite movie of all time. <sighs> I just think it's weird that he was such a good, like, adventure comedy director, and then he basically just abandoned the genre for pretty much ever, as far as I can tell. Uh, Romance in the Stone, Back to the Future, Who Frames Robert Rabbit. And Back to the Future is two and three. Um, I did not see Death Becomes Her. No, me neither. But then it goes Forrest Gump, I don't, uh, Contact. Oh, yeah, Contact, which is a good movie, but again, not a comedy. No. Yeah, What Lies Beneath, uh, Cast Away. And then he, the only other things he's directed oh, Polar are... Polar Express, Beowulf, and The Christmas Carol. That is a dismal decade Flight. right there. So, yeah, I, I think it's too bad because based on his first couple of movies, you could have been like, this guy's the next Steven Spielberg, and he's even really good friends with Steven Spielberg. But uh, now, I think, if anything, his reputation has taken a pretty big tank, and he's pretty much like uh, thought of more as like someone who is interested in like effects and technology than story at this point. Um, you might be right. Uh, Flight may be able to pull him out of this funk. Um, but yeah, Back to the Future is such a solid movie. Um, the only thing is, the only two special effects that look really bad are Marty's disappearing hand. Mm-hmm. And I think it's when the car first goes uh, forward with um, Einstein in it, and they're like watching it drive at them. Oh yeah, when it when they like dive out of the way and it reappears. Like when they, that, when, that when they like bad. dive out of the way, but like the flames are still streaking. Like, oh yeah, I thought it looked worse when it reappeared. It kind of it had this Tron-y digital effect where it like you know was all kind of blocky, and then it like I don't know. I thought that was a little bit worse. Like for the, I mean, like the, I thought the the ending scene where it it flies off looked fine. Yeah, me too. Like surprisingly good for the time. Yeah. Period. Oh, sorry. One other thing. Um, since we grew up after this film came out, like I have always associated the DeLorean with the movie and with time travel. But what do you think it was like? For people before this movie to see the DeLorean, or like what? Yeah, like you know. I was wondering about this question also. Like, what was the reputation? Like, it was it was a car what for like a good reputation five of the years or something before, before the movie this. came out. Yeah, the only thing that I can think is that I believe that I believe that the DeLorean, from what I've read about it, was a very very high profile failure. Like, if it's like something like something like the Tesla S came out. But it was just a huge pile of shit. But there was like that much like media attention and stuff paid to it. So like from what I understand, the DeLorean was a very, very high concept failure. 
that like everybody knew what it was, but nobody actually had one because it was so ridiculous and impractical and probably expensive. So I think it's I think I think when when like the back of that van opens and like the DeLorean like trundles out and Marty's like, You made a time machine out of a DeLorean? Like it's like it's kind of like a deeper like I think I think for people of that time period there's even like a an additional layer of the joke where it's like not only has he made a time machine, he's made it out of this unbelievably shitty car. But that's just a guess on my part because I also do not know what the reputation of the DeLorean was at that time. Anyway, uh, next time our movie is Groundhog Day, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so too because I think it's Groundhog Day and then uh, Planet of the Apes after that. So, Groundhog Day, another movie. I've seen it much, much more recently than Back to the Future, but another movie I am really looking forward to rewatching it. Oh, really? I have not seen Groundhog Day since I was a, a very young kid. Oh, really? Oh, I'm I, I'm jealous of you. I'm 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 looking forward to it. <laughs>